0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Mount Visual Podcast. I'm Blaine. And I'm Anthony. And today, we are going to talk about the return of Jesus. Anthony, (laughs) why don't you just start with some verses? We're going to roll into this topic, this beat, an event, and a reality in the story of God, through the lens of the New Testament witness, and then unpack some challenges, uh, some obstacles that a person may encounter as they try to frame and believe and live into the return of Christ, which is an absolutely indispensable reality at the epicenter of the gospel. So, Ant-Man, where to?
1: I'll start with... 1 Corinthians 15:20-28 20 But in fact Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have died for since death came through a human being the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being for as all die in Adam so all will be made alive in Christ but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed every ruler and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who put all things in subjection under him, so that God may be all in all.
0: And that is happening right now. Okay, next verse.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All of this is happening now and will happen in the future. But, Anthony. 1 Thessalonians 4. 16 through 17. The Lord himself, with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever.
0: Oh, Anthony, is that when the rapture happens?
1: (laughs) I like how N.T. Wright talks about this. His image is not being caught up in the clouds to evacuate the the earth, never to return, but meeting Jesus in his coming in the clouds and then actually basically returning to steward the earth
0: into eternity. Yeah, the, the appearing, the word the parousia, which I'm an expert at saying Greek words in English, so trust me, it means the appearing and it is a political word for the visit of a sovereign. So you're welcome to consider the visits of the Roman Caesars to the various provinces uh, there to tell the good news of the kingdom being present. And at their appearance, the people of a city would run out and line the city to welcome the sovereign and then go back in with them. So you get a sacramental image of this in the triumphal entry. And then it gets picked up again in uh, Paul's writings, anticipating the ultimate triumphal entry, the ultimate parousia of a king returning to his people. More verses, Anthony. We'll all make jokes about the end times in popular culture. The revealing of the sons of God. Who are they? Are they like, uh... Hello. I was getting tornado warnings last week, everyone, at my house, including a get inside and seek shelter right now. And at that point, it was, it was quite wild out there. I wanted to say one other thing, which was, oh, uh, the suffering of this present time. Does he mean the persecution under the Roman Empire, Anthony? Is, is that the time that he's talking about?
1: It's all of the above, man. It's uh, the sufferings in the age that we're in. So much, so many of the passages, I think, that uh, in this conversation we'll see that so many of the passages about the parousia, the coming, the age to come, the resurrection, all these different ways, the marriage feast, the, the, uh, the closing of this story, um, so many of them are paired with mention of our sufferings in this life. And one of the invitations... For the follower of Christ is to see their sufferings eschatologically as being part of the process, uh, part of uh, sowing in to the age to come, um, part of the process of being formed into a being that can live and serve and steward and celebrate in the age to come. So, in this conversation, as we're wrapping up the story of God series, and in talking about the eschaton, which is another way of talking about this, the, the final things. So much of this conversation should be an invitation to take hope, to to offer our sufferings in this life, all of our sufferings. So yes, the Roman Roman persecution, the suffering of fasting, uh, the suffering of simply dying to self, as you submit to Christ's formation of you in your marriage or in your relationship with other people. All the sufferings, they they serve a purpose and they're rooted in our hope of the age to come, and the the hope and expectation of sharing in Christ's glory is what should sustain us and give us yeah power energy hope in our sufferings now like Jesus himself, himself demonstrated this he lived a life of suffering uh, he had no place to lay his head he of course died on the cross and that was the seed dying and breaking down uh, for the sake of the glory that he now experiences seated at the right hand of the
0: father in his ascension and enthronement. So awesome! Sometimes during our gatherings, you will do story time for children. <laughs> I think that eventually we're just going to have to include a, <laughs> a, a, a vigil kid segment. I'm half kidding, half completely serious now <laughs> be awesome. because it's always so delightful when you get up there with a kids book and tearing up over the Apostles' Creed or. Teaching something about gift theology are like (laughs) large black bear looking, (laughs) rough Anthony. It's like all of these children around his feet. Just a a favorite image.
1: At this point, I get more excited about preparing because, like, the way that we teach at our large gathering when all our house churches come together is we'll have like a 10 to 15 minute kids teaching where they all come up and then followed by the sermon. And at this point, I spend more time thinking about the, the children's time. And I feel like it's the most impactful time, and we might as well just wrap things up and go back to worship and praying for each other after that. It's
0: I actually completely agree because I've been working on a memorial service for a friend, and then after talking to the people involved, I was like, I actually need to make this for like a six to eight-year-olds. Mm. So I rewrote it, and it was far more even impactful for me and better <laughs> to be like, how? Would I teach this to the youngest, the least of these? Why is there good news to be had that they can understand? So, Anthony, the children are gathered around your feet. (laughs) Uh, Some of the young ones from the house churches are here, and your job is to tell them the good news about the return of Christ. Let's take a stab or two. What would that? sound like? What would explaining this beat in the story of God to children be like?
1: What a challenge. Reminds me of, I think it's Ben Franklin. No, Churchill. Well, all quotes go to one of those two guys who (laughs) says, you know, give me a, give me, um, give me, like, if if I'm going to speak for an hour, give me five minutes to prepare. If I'm going to speak for half an hour, give me you know, half an hour to prepare. If I'm going to speak for five minutes, give me three days to prepare.
0: Oh, that's Uh, so true. The
1: the distillation is is where it's at. Actually, I did something like this already for the kids at our church regarding one aspect, one way of telling the story, specifically um, in regards to the Holy Spirit as the down payment for our redemption and as the seal, the seal that will be opened at the return of Christ. So I took um, some wax and uh, a, a seal something that looked like a seal when pressed into wax. It was just some object I found in my catch-all drawer because um, <laughs> I don't have a wax seal, sadly. And melted the wax and folded up some paper and, you know, did, did, did the whole thing. And we talked about what does a seal do? Well, it tells us who wrote what's inside the envelope, um, inside the message. It tells us a thing that seal can also say, this belongs to the person whose seal is on it. And Um, It's also a way of saying it's, it's, it's sort of a form of protection because the message, the contents are protected until that seal is broken. And so one of the ways we can talk about this is by saying Jesus has not left us alone in his ascension. First of all, he is embodied in our gathering. He's present with us and he has sent us the Holy Spirit. So in this time, in the now and not yet, in the not yet time, we have the Holy Spirit who is a seal upon us. And on that day, the day of redemption, when Jesus returns for his bride to utterly vanquish his enemies, to end the story, to take us to be with him forever in joy, that seal will be broken. And so we can feel safe now knowing that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And we can know whose we are. We have a sense of identity because of that seal of the Holy Spirit.
0: Into it. Uh, I don't know if we've talked about this before, but there's a hypothesis that I'm currently interested in. So, I was in Old Testament land, and I was looking at uh, some papers on covenants of Grant versus Hittite vassal treaties, because most of the Old Testament uh, covenant language can be reduced to one of those two things. And or is derived or built in relationship with those, which is absolutely epic. I'm not going to take that rabbit trail. <laughs> um, but here's what I thought was interesting is that in terms of its composition, the covenant at Sinai, the giving of the law, looks a lot like a Hittite vassal treaty or a vassal treaty of any kind from that age. And what a vassal treaty did was introduce the king to his people. Uh, hello, nice to meet you. Uh, My name is Alakahoyuk, and I am awesome. Now, let me tell you what it would look like for us to have a good relationship. I'm going to provide an army. I'm going to give you our agricultural technologies. You give me 80% of the crops every year. This is a good thing. Obviously, the Lot Sinai being much more generous than that. But what is fascinating to me is that immediately... Israel saw that Sinai was a wedding. And in fact, the majority of the Jewish feasts that we're passionate about have some relationship to the symbolic event at Sinai, the real sacramental thing where multiple orders of reality came together. But one of my questions about this is that if that's true, one of the things that would have to be fulfilled, one of the most important things of a marriage covenant is the gift of the bride price and of father of the groom to the father of the bride and i have some ideas about what, what that could be at sinai but one thing that you see happening is like well if these things come together in the work of christ and the we talked about bridal theology a little bit last time that the church is the bride of christ And we are pledged, and then we're awaiting. Well, the coolest thing about how this works for the church in this age, okay, is that at the giving of the bride price, they were functionally married. And so all of the legal responsibilities that went in hand with being married became true immediately, but the wedding did not become a... Reality they could participate in until the groom actually came to get his bride. Does that sound at all like the life of the church in this age where the reality is here? But one thing I was looking at in terms of the gift of the Spirit is that the seal of the Spirit is that that can play the role of the bride price. The other thing that can, in Ephesians 4, he ascended led many captives and gave gifts to man, well, one or two verses later, Paul says what he means, and he says he gave the apostles, uh, the prophets, the etc. I could pull it up. I should pull it up. Here's the actual list. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. Well, more than one thing going on there. But one thing that's kind of epic about that is that the offices, the ministries of the church given to the people also function in this bride price role. Um, The gift of the groom to the family that is itself a sign that the marriage is already a reality awaiting final consummation. It's
1: beautiful. I think that matches up well also with a rich interpretation of the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25. You can picture the virgins as actually being the the stewards of the church who are supposed to um, be lighting the way, um, telling everyone where the groom is going to be, awaiting his return for his bride, who is the church. Also in Ephesians 4, Paul says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption in that line of thinking he's connecting those dots.
0: That's so good. This started as tell the kids. I'm going to take a stab at it too and then you can riff on my stab. Because I did not recently do this for a bunch of children <laughs> talking about the Holy Spirit. Guys, remember why God made everything. He wanted to multiply the life of the Trinity, and create in an ongoing way with his free creatures. So he began, he generated a universe, he made creation, and then he filled it with beings who have the capacity to love and to do the kinds of things that God does to order, to create order and to fill it with life. And then all of the tragedies that marked This present age took place. Jesus came and began to put the marriage, to establish the marriage of heaven and earth. He came to put things back together. He sent the Holy Spirit so that his people could do that. We are doing it now. But what we are waiting for is Genesis again, Eden again where the knowledge of God, the presence of God, as the prophet Isaiah says, covers the world the way the waters cover the sea, which is where heaven and earth come together, and the dwelling place of God is not experienced just locally in his church, but is in his creation, like we saw in the last parts of Genesis 1 and 2, where God came down and rested and abided in his creation, that will happen when Jesus, in his body, who is currently, we said, anchoring our humanity in the presence of God, and where the Holy Spirit in the church is anchoring the presence of God in the world, will come back together. I'm not sure kids could follow that, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. That wasn't kid-appropriate, but it was quite lovely. <laughs> <laughs> That's... Right now, my son is only interested in uh, Bible stories where someone gets captured. <laughs> so my challenge has been to tell a story that is interesting to a three-year-old, but also like has a little bit of the thrust of like reality is one kind of place shaped by the story of God, mm-hmm. um, and also doesn't get totally bogged down because I did say to my kids, this actually happened the other night and M caught me, which was like that the purchase price, the silver paid for Joseph is actually kind of low for a slave at that time. But Anthony, it was the first intermediate period in Egyptian history, which is kind of a global dark age. So they were in a bit of a recession. So Joseph was bought at a bargain.
1: <laughs> That's hilarious. Also, that number is a, uh, a type, not, not the number itself, actually, but the, the idea of being paid for with silver is a type that's fulfilled with Jesus being betrayed with yeah. the silver Actually,
0: coins. the number itself is, too, because the number uh, develops and goes up over the Old Testament canon, which is both like an historical reality that you can look at contemporary literature and see the price of a slave. Uh, increasing at about the rate of the progression of the Old Testament narrative. Um,
1: (laughs) So you're like, uh, Anthony, if you include include the time value of money, uh, it's the same.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's good, but (laughs) there's like a
1: build there towards Uh, Jesus. One of the things I wanted to take some time to to talk about in this conversation, hopefully this conversation is helpful to you, listener. It's a little bit uh, discursive, but... Our, our, our primary goal here for everyone listening, for ourselves, is to have our imagination shaped by the reality that we are in the overlap of the previous age and the age to come. And that the entire history of the church, going from Jesus, and you could say his incarnation or his, his crucifixion somewhere in his earthly ministry, all the way to his return, is the end times. That that is the, the framing for the entire period between and for your entire life, so whether Jesus comes back for his church tomorrow as we record this or in a thousand years, that the end times is that period in between, and that the church is fundamentally therefore an eschatological establishment uh, family uh, creation that it serves to show everyone who's still lives in the old age, that the new age has actually come, and that it will fully come when Jesus returns for his bride. So, a helpful picture is, imagine two circles, like a Venn diagram, two ellipses that overlap, and the left circle, so one on the left and one on the right, and they overlap, right? Uh, The left circle is the previous age, and it's the age of it's the way things used to be when you didn't know Jesus, before Jesus came and revealed uh, fully the Father and the plan for redemption and how to be with God. For most of the world especially, who you know, not Israel, uh, there was simply evil, sin, death, slavery, violence, curse. And then Jesus comes and he inaugurates the new age. The, the old things are passing away and the new things are coming but we live in the now and not yet so there's this overlap of the two ages. And then on the far right so the 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 right circle is the age to come and it's the the day of redemption the uh what people typically would just call heaven um but that's not exactly how we would say it. Um the age to come is what it will be like when Jesus has when, when there's no more spiritual warfare, when there's no more death, no more tears, and when the new heavens and new earth, uh, when heaven and earth are united, the reign of Christ fully established. And we live in the middle, right? Where is like, like you know, Paul talks about in, in Ephesians, he talks about the ruler of the age. The, the ruler of the world now is, as he says, the devil, and yet Jesus is the ruler of, of the world and he's defeated the devil. And there's all these, all this tension, this con, these contradictions, the now and not yet is what we live in. And you can ask the question why, and it's a good question, but first we should simply just let the story be the way it is and, 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 and learn to think about it that way. I think one, one good answer to the why, why is, it, why is there this overlap period? And one of the best answers that I can offer is simply that it's the mercy of God. That he tarries to allow for more and more people to come to know him, come to faith in him, come to allegiance in him. And the scriptures talk about the full number of the Gentiles coming in. God has a plan, a rhythm to this story, and and the things that are required in this overlap period are not complete. So our lives are fundamentally marked by tension, by being anchored in this future event that is occurring now. So we talked about in our church series about how we must see in our gathering the age to come as being displayed, put on display, and actually realized to some degree, however um, limited or incomplete. But also pretty profoundly real um, when we come together and we gather and we break bread and we drink the wine and we participate in the life of Christ. We are experiencing. That marriage feast that will come uh, fully in the future when Jesus returns for his bride.
0: That was so good, dude. Epic. I want to talk a bit about Jewish eschatology and ancient eschatology, eschatology. Eschatology. Get my Wisconsin in there in general, which is that the division of time into principally two. Qualities of age. And these were not measured uh, by quantity. These were ontological realities. Right? So these were qualities of life. And, you know, together with our brothers, you're our brothers, guys. One of the advantages of being a Nicene Christian in the tradition that we inhabit is we get to claim everyone uh, <laughs> the Catholic and the Orthodox. Uh, well, they just have to call us friends. Anyway. Uh, at the Lord of Spirits will say that the ancient mystery religions are demonic propaganda, and meaning they have s- some truth in them, but it's been distorted to pervert the essential reality. Well, you can find the idea of time being divided between two qualities of age in Zoroastrianism. Uh, you can find it actually in the way that many ancient kings talk about their reign as initiating the age to come. the Like, there was this present thing, but that's passing away, and now kurash is here, and all things are as they should be. Well, how this idea uh, got purified in the revelation of God mediated through the people Israel was haolem ha-ha, haolem ha uh, One of which, I can't remember which one is which right now, uh, but... This present age and the age to come. And this present age is the world apart from the direct reign of God. And then the age to come is the world where God has purified the world from evil. It's the quality of life when God has come back to dwell with his people, not only through the sacrificial system on occasion through the temple, but everywhere. And when Paul uses the word ion, remember, Greek words translate uh, spoken Aramaic to translate a culture whose lexicon was Hebrew. But some of the, one of the linchpins between these things is the Jewish worldview of the first century, inside of which some of the revelation of God was encoded. And so Paul has the same idea. He goes, this present age, life apart from the reign of God, with all of its institutions and violence and evil, is passing away. Thank God. The age to come is already experienced. The reign of God is experienced in our life as his people, but one day it will completely come together. And so what I love is we're talking about the return of Christ, and we haven't talked about the book of Revelation at all, which we probably won't in this conversation, (laughs) um, because, well, one reason we don't have to is because... The expectation of the return of Jesus saturates the library of the New Testament, including the old, earliest pieces, which are the letters of Paul. Thessalonians in particular, I do not want you to be uninformed about those who have fallen asleep, may be the earliest or among the earliest letter. There are New Testament scholars listening who are saying, yeah, but I mean, a lot of those... Letters circulated as liturgical tracts and they were assembled together, so getting the age, blah, blah, blah. For Paul, it was indispensable that God would come back. Why? Because it is the nature of the age to come that the immediate presence of God, the being of God, which incarnate in Christ, would come back. Yes, we experience that now as his people making it on earth as it is in heaven, but it is impossible for the hope of the Bible to be realized without the eternal second person of the Trinity, Jesus, God incarnate being here, reigning over the world. So there's, that was the, uh, <laughs> the Jewish eschatology digression. And obviously I don't care about this at all. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Something that triggers for me is in talking about Adding some flexibility, some nuance to, to how we talk about the overlap of the, these ages. We shouldn't think only in, in terms of time, but also in terms of space. And uh, this, if you read through Ephesians, there's, there's a bit of a sense of this, that it, the age to come and the age that's passing away is actually spatiotemporal and probably more dimensions than those two words Ew. give account for right so you used to be there in that place and now you're in this place with different kingdoms right um so their locations and that's that's also how we should think about our the now and not yetness of our our life together that the place where people's got where where God's people gather is the place where the age to come is now and Actually, like the word eon, eon is um, often translated as the word world, because people are trying to capture the full import of the qualitative difference, not just... Uh, A material
0: like, reality. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: And not simply the days are past and the days to come in some sense of time. And anyone who has studied the concept of time, uh, just in modern terms, would appreciate this, because there kind of is no such thing. There's space-time. And, yeah, exactly. And so Talking about Paul... Is really important because I think long before we get to Revelation and try to do the work, Revelation is like is a heavy hitter text, and um, (laughs) it's also it's also incredibly uh, easy to misinterpret. Um, So it's not a beginner's text. I just got a flashback side story here. Christina, my wife and I, driving from Colorado to Missouri to go see my family, and we're we're driving through the night. And we are passing by one of the early huge fields of wind turbines, and it's nighttime, so the red lights are flashing. And when the lights flash, the 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 huge uh, kind of titan like arms of the of the wind turbines are seen. It's, and then, I, that's such a terrifying... is, wearing, is a headlamp because with with the red light turned on because it's it's you know it's late. Um, was she reading? And she was reading aloud Revelation to me, and it, it created a very creepy vibe, that was how we spent our time together, very pure behavior. Going back to Paul, in a book called The Apostle of the Crucified Lord, um, which is a wonderful attempt to basically connect all the dots of Pauline theology and give an introduction uh, to his, his opus, um, the... The author, whose name I'm forgetting, all of a sudden, the author has a section called the Twelve Fundamental Convictions. Paul's Twelve fun, f-
0: Fundamental Convictions sounds like a valuable book section. It's
1: so th- the whole thing is so amazing. It summarizes each text and and so on. Uh, the twelfth one is the Perusia, so the return, the presence, the resurrection, and the final triumph of God. And here is his short summary of Paul in this fundamental conviction. As an apocalyptic Jew and a Pharisee, Paul found in the resurrection of the Messiah, the beginning of the age to come, the invasion of the future into the present. Just as Christ was the representative human in his death, so also was he in his resurrection. Specifically, Paul found in Christ the first fruits of the general resurrection, the guarantee of bodily resurrection for all who are in him and share in his cruciform life, as well as the assurance of God's final defeat of sin and death and of the restoration of the entire cosmos. In that restoration, God will be be all in all, and the divine intention of the cosmos will be fulfilled. I love that we can talk all day about the eschaton, the age to come, the resurrection, and as you pointed out, not go straight to Revelation, not go straight to some of the hard to understand, you know, end times quote unquote passages and try to pick them apart and try to explain what we think the thousand years is about, but simply to look to the, these anchoring texts like Ephesians, for instance, um, some of these early, like, here's, here's the, I mean, they're deep, so they're not shallow, but here's the overview of like the story and like what's happening. And all of them uh, have built into them fundamentally this expectation of the Perusia.
0: I love that so much. Because we're allowing ourselves a few digressions here, you want to know something interesting about being an apocalyptic Jew and the resurrection is that there are some modern scholars who like to argue that until pretty late, In the second century, so like the mid-100s, they're like, there's just no writing from Jews about their experience or about anticipating the resurrection. One, it's just not true. Uh, But what I think is most interesting about that claim is that there are a lot of things that don't get written about outside the library of the Bible itself. Uh, I've been in Tom Holland land, which I told you, so his book, Dominion, about how the Christian worldview shaped uh, and transformed the world. Secular scholar, absolutely amazing book. It's also just a page turner. If you don't read a lot of history, Tom Holland is your man. But he says in the first chapter of that book that there are no depictions, uh, literary or otherwise, of crucifixion apart from the four gospels until very late into the development of Christianity. And so there's a saying in the study of history and in archaeology in particular, which is that absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Meaning, if you don't find something, it doesn't mean it wasn't there. Especially if it is there in one of uh, the most important, like highly reviewed, highly trafficked pieces of literature which is the canon of scripture from that age. So there's just some times that people who have tenured positions at universities say stuff that makes me feel that feeling when someone's wrong on the internet, (laughs) (laughs) which is just a thing that needs to be crucified because they're not my problem. (laughs) Um, But for you who are listening, uh, know that actually there are many pieces of judaism at the time of the work of christ that are that it wind up exclusively inside the canon of the new testament and so you know i think i said before how we know about the four schools of philosophy from flavius josephus who's so freaking roman he won't even call himself by a jewish name joseph joseph i'm josephus anyway He writes a bit about that, but a lot of what we have about Pharisaical Judaism and the sect of the Sadducees controlling temple worship is in the Bible itself. That's where it got preserved, and that's worth knowing.
1: If you decide to look into this more, listener, additionally, we should mention the Essenes who were very eschatological, very driven by a vision of the Battle of Armageddon, of final things, of the return like messianic prophecies and so on so it was the Essenes and the Pharisees who had a more um, developed vision of things to come whereas the Sadducees at least my understanding of them um, so far is that they were more uh materialist and emanatist. Im- in in uh, if that makes if that means anything to you you should um, say
0: what that means
1: <laughs> i, I want to talk about that if we get maybe in the next conversation immanatizing the eschaton and so on okay um but basically, everything has to happen now, here and now, because this is what there is. That's, that's the, the, the nutshell.
0: Yeah. They were the first highly educated, rich elite to deny the resurrection. <laughs> Just kidding. That's always a thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where to now?
1: Uh, I wanted to read Ephesians 1, 7 through 14. <laughs> In him, we have redemption through his blood. We who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So, Um. some, some obvious connecting points here. We have this language about a plan for the fullness of time, which some might say is realized in Jesus' earthly ministry, um, but I think also points to um, his return for the church. Either way, it, it, he goes on, Paul goes on to say that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance
0: um, until we acquire possession of it. It's just so good, man. I'm, I'm pausing for a second, our friends listening, and included in the recording, Jesus, would you make it clear to us where the questions are? It's important to communicate a coherent picture, but also it's important to see where the, where the points of curiosity are going to be. So what needs to be talked about? What comes to mind for you?
1: What's on my heart is... That I want every person listening, every person engaging in this dialogue, to believe at a very deep level in their being that this whole story is rooted in love. And I'm going to read, skip skip ahead a a little bit in Ephesians, moving on to, to Ephesians 2, 1 through 7, to make this point. Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So the the reason for this cosmic story that Paul gives us in Ephesians two one through seven is so that, like God did this. Why why all this complicated story? Why all this extravagance? Why this offering of Christ to save us from the age the old age, the old ways. It's so that in the coming ages, beginning with the age to come, he might show us the immeasurable riches of grace, of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Earlier in that thought, he says he did it because of his great love with which he loved us. So, as difficult as the story can be to understand, especially if you try to get into some of the, uh, the heavy-duty texts like Matthew twenty four twenty five, the Olivet Discourse or Revelation, and so on, you might feel uh, disoriented or confused with all the different perspectives and people approach this conversation just trying to figure out, like, the nitty-gritty and who's right and who's wrong. Um, I think we're missing the plot if we don't have this fundamental sense that Jesus is returning for his bride and that this whole uh, economy of salvation, this whole story was developed because God had a great love with which he loved us, and he wanted to show us in the age to come the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Yeah, And I pray for you, listener, that the Holy Spirit would, would, would be the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you would know this. You can hear it with your ears and you can think it propositionally with your mind, but there's a, a spiritual revelation that you need and you can't achieve it on your own. It's a, a miracle of, of the, the outpouring of the Spirit in you. So I pray that for you and I, I hope that you pray it for yourself.
0: Mm, that's so good. I want to talk out of a parable for a minute. We are going to have an entire conversation, most likely, on application. On, in Michael Gorman's phrase, following the lamb into the new creation. But as we listened, I, I just thought, uh, what do you do with this? And what about timing? Because we do wonder. And I'm going to give you a parable out of Luke 19, uh, the parable of the talents, and then uh, say some things that are helpful, I hope. So starting in verse 11, by the way, at this point, he's, he's he's being the master of the table at the home of Zacchaeus. And he's just, I mean, it's just epic where he is saying salvation has come to this house through the healing of Zacchaeus, which took place in... His own repentance and then the transformation of the direction of his life. And then Jesus tells a story. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear all at once. That's verse 11, but I am going to comment on it. Something important to know is that the major beats of the story of God are achieved and present in Christ, and they get repeated in other elements like the sending of the Holy Spirit and the formation of the church and ultimately the return of Christ. Because what Israel does not know is that Yahweh is very close, and he's coming back to check on his people's centuries-old commission to be a nation of priests that's a blessing for the whole world. But he's, there's not going to be a pop and a bang and Yahweh is back. Yahweh incarnate in Jesus is coming to check on the temple, you know, in just the next beats of the story. And everything's going to unfold in the way that we talked about of, you know, the purification of the temple, the Passover, the ultimate sacrifice, all of those things. So he's telling a story that illustrates what's happening but this story goes on to be a foundational piece of orientation for the church. Uh, so here's what he says. Uh, Jesus. A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minus. Put this money to work, he said. I'll just give the Greek. I'm not going to give the actual uh, translation because it's hard. And ho. I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this. And there's just a blank because they're not going to write the actual expletive. It's inferred. So it's just going to say, if you look at the Greek, we don't want this to be our king. Um, So put in your favorite, they're stabbing a finger at him and saying, we don't want this piece of, you know, we don't want this son of a, like, um, this is a very rude moment. Uh, We don't want this blank to be our king. Next line, he was made king, however, (laughs) and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it, what had been done. Then the servants make the report. I'm actually just going to stop because the servants making the report might be a conversation for next time. So let me say what's happening in this parable. A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king. Put on your first century worldview hat. This happens. A lot. And the outcomes are not clear. So Herod fought against Caesar Augustus. You and I have told this story. It's just so cool. in maybe a bad way. Herod the Great, who was a psychopath and a sociopath, fought with Mark Antony against Caesar Augustus, a.k.a. Octavian, and lost. And now Caesar Augustus is on his way to reconquer the territories of Rome, and he's coming down into Judea. So Herod goes to him and he gets a face-to-face meeting with Caesar Augustus and he gives a speech that says, functionally, I fought you with all of the means at my disposal. I poured out my blood on the battlefield in an effort to stop you. I was supporting Mark Antony. And what I want my Lord to consider is not whose friend I was, but what kind of friend I was and what it would mean for Caesar to have a man like that on his side. Well, Caesar Augustus thinks that's a good idea. So he gives Herod the Great his job back. And so Herod went away to be appointed king, and he comes back king. Well, his son Archelaus does the same thing, and he is sent into exile. So there's a, there's a dispute after Herod the Great dies. Archelaus goes to be made king, and he's banished forever. So in intervening time between when a king went away and when he came back, it would kind of be like going into a coffee shop and in the most heated point of an American election, yelling who you support and saying, and I am actually signing over my entire estate to this candidate because I know they're going to win. And when they win, that's going to be how I want to live. It's, the outcomes are uncertain. And so... He calls his servants, this man who's going to go away on this uncertain expedition, and he says, put this money to work, and then un-en-ho, which most people say until, but it's one of three ways you can translate it. And the other two both have to do with quality, not with time. So until, time. Here's an interval. I'm a venture capitalist. When I come back, I'm going to want my money back. A better translation would be um, assuming that or in which are the other two. So put this money to work in such a way that assumes I'm coming back, meaning act like I'm king already. And if you do and I don't, you're pretty much doomed because that's just how this works. And then he comes back and is like, okay, let's see what they did with the money. Uh, Because it's actually, this is an acid test of the faithfulness of the servants When Kenneth Bailey teaches on this, he talks about uh, working in universities and seminaries, and after the fall of the Soviet Union, and one of the first questions that this seminary would ask as candidates is, "When were you baptized?" Because if a person was baptized while the Soviet Union was still in power, they were giving everything away, and in in that case, most of the time they're like, "Oh, you were in that time. We know you're for real." Welcome to seminary. But if a person is like, last week, I just waited to see which way the wind was blowing, and now we're going to be Christian this way. So, And then they would have more questions like, what happened? What persuaded you to be faithful to Jesus now that it doesn't cost you anything? So this, you have this picture of Jesus coming back, but commissioning his people, do business, assuming that I'm going to return, What is that? If you want to know what that looks like, look at the New Testament letters, look at the book of Acts, look at the written accounts of the fathers in the first several centuries of the church. I told you before we started, I've been slowly working through the really amazing but very dense, the patient ferment of the early church, and just seeing what they did with that was live the Jesus way and try, they brought their lives into alignment with the Sermon on the Mount. As I've been in the patient ferment land, I've been seeing that in some areas, they wouldn't even baptize catechumens, aka apprentice Christians, who weren't living in alignment with the teachings of Jesus. It was like, what are you talking about? You're not forgiving your enemies. You're charging interest. You're not serving. You're, like, go try again and come back. And the point is, I love, like, people who eagerly expected the return of Christ lived like this, 1 Peter 2, 11-17. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves, for the Lord's sake, to every human authority, whether to the emperor as supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the talk of ignorant people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves." Show proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. It's just amazing. What I want to call your attention to here, I think that was like a beautiful reminder that this is of love is the motive power. And what I want to say is that eagerly expecting and believing that Christ is going to come back and make it on earth as in heaven, people who follow Jesus have let that be their motive and also their consolation as they live the Jesus way, which means you stop trying to make this life work for you, and you begin seeding the age to come. How do you do that? You live the Jesus way. Uh, You look at the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount and then try to actually embody them, like... The teachers across history where just trying to do the Sermon on the Mount is what made them a revolutionary, made them change the world, and then got them in a lot of trouble. Uh, Bonhoeffer, Gandhi, Uh, he did not follow Jesus, but the inflection point was when he's in South Africa and a buddy of his gives him a New Testament scholar's book on the Sermon on the Mount explaining what it is. And Gandhi is like, this is the way. And, you know, numerous teachers who just go... Uh, do business assuming Christ is actually going to come back. Act like he's king already. What does that mean? Live the Jesus school of flourishing.
1: It's so good. That right there, everything you just said, is the, the thesis of this podcast. If you go back to episode one of this conversation, the whole point of the Mount Vigil project is to talk about, to help others... H- to work ourselves to understand the story of God, to read our times according to it, and then to learn how to walk in the way, how to respond to what's happening, to the story that we're in, to what's been said and promised uh, by walking in the Jesus way. That's that's all we have to say. That's all we have to offer. Um, I, w- I wanted to quickly read the beginning and end of the Sermon on the Mount uh, in the David Bentley Hart translation. So It begins... Now seeing the crowds, Jesus ascended the mountain, and when he seated himself, his disciples approached him, and opening his mouth, he taught them, saying, How blissful the destitute, abject in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of the heavens! How blissful those who mourn, for they shall be aided! How blissful the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth! How blissful those who hunger and thirst for what is right, for they shall feast! How blissful the merciful, for they shall receive mercy! How blissful the pure in heart, for they shall see God! How blissful the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. How blissful those who have been persecuted for the sake of what is right, for theirs is the kingdom of the heavens. Going to the end of the sermon, to the end of uh, chapter 7, Jesus, having uh, developed those Beatitudes and given an overview of the way of Jesus, the, the Christian ethic, he ends up with some, some warnings, some exhortations, and one of these is a story you probably heard as a kid if you grew up in Bible study or Sunday school. Uh, he says, everyone therefore who hears these sayings of mine and enacts them shall be likened to a prudent man who built his house upon rock. And the rain descended, and the rivers flooded in, and the winds blew and fell upon that house. And it did not fall, for it had been founded upon rock. And everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not enact them shall be likened to a foolish man who built his house upon sand. And the rain descended and the rivers flooded in. And the winds blew and beat upon that house. And it fell and its fall was a great one. And I believe this flood that we can think about the inauguration of the age to come, the return of Christ, or maybe even just your own death, as being the flood that will come and test your entire life and what it's built upon and the only thing that we have to offer that we have to say all these conversations are just various ways of saying this that we exhort you to build your house your entire life your, all your thoughts submitting all your thoughts your energies your feelings your your material possessions your time your imagination to Jesus that he is the rock that you must build your life upon everything else will be washed away there is a flood coming and it's good news for those who will be found to be in Christ. What this message does for me the way that God's been personally challenging me on it is to meditate upon the fear of the Lord and upon holiness. There's a couple of books he he's led me to personally in this conversation and uh there's just like the invitation Anthony you must grow in the fear of the Lord. And it's something I'm asking for, like, Lord, give me, there, there's an old 90s worship song, I want to hate what you hate, I want to love what you love, give me the fear of the Lord. And I'm praying that daily right now. And it's also, it, it, makes, it reminds me of the importance of confession as a sacramental practice in the church, something that I take much more seriously than I used to. And when I pray the Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me as sinner. I really feel it these days. My last thoughts, I wanted to share something that I typically will read to our gathering on Pentecost. And right now, as at the time of this recording, we are a few days out from Ascension and, and then 10 days further out from Pentecost. Um, this is a passage in a book called The Face of the Deep by my friend Paul Pastor. And he writes, Peter said that when the Spirit was poured out, The world was seeing its last days. Confusing, perhaps, because history has obviously continued, but true. All things were beginning to end. It was the apocalypse. The end of the world had truly come, has truly come, by the Spirit, who at once was a descending fire of judgment, but not the judgment we expected, and the poured-out promise beginning to flow over all flesh. This was the vision that Joel saw. What do Peter's words mean? And he's talking about Peter's sermon at Pentecost. That the last days are these days, our days, the day of the boy in the field, the day of the dancers. We have lived in the last days ever since the Spirit fell to indwell the church with power. Ever since Pentecost, we have lived at the end of the world. But it has not been the end that we expected because God is doing a new thing. The fire of the apocalypse that fell from heaven to end the world was not the fire of destruction. It was the fire of the Holy Spirit. God began to end the world on Pentecost, began a new chapter of making all things new. Who knows what the true dawn will bring? We still await Christ's coming in glory, the rise and descent of the Son of Righteousness, empowered by the Spirit to transform and burn alive and purify. But according to Joel and Peter, that burning and transforming have already started. Who could have said that they expected God's fiery dance to look like this? The gift of God to every generation of Christians is that they should be the last to live on the earth. There will come, I believe, a moment of utter end, though the details of that day are mysterious, but that does not lessen the power of this fact. None of us know the day or hour, and we all are allowed full expectation. The end could come today. It could have come every one of 2,000 years of yesterdays. It might come after 2,000 years of tomorrows. It is, I say, a gift of God to be able to look at the sky every day and wonder, maybe today. This is the gift of the Spirit who does new things, who is able to do new things, who has done new things, who is even now doing new things. Every contemplation of the end is a contemplation of a beginning. He makes it so. He has already been poured out on all flesh, already ended the world as it was, and though he often is hidden, he washes over the world like a wave of new lamp oil waiting to be set alight. No one knows the hour, that the sky will truly open, the veil torn in a way that the eye can see. Every Christian from baptism until death has watched the skies in accordance with our teaching, looking for the fulfillment of Scripture and the creeds. Truly we await his coming in glory. But the glory is that, in one sense, we await the one who is already here. The Spirit has been poured out on us as representatives of and ambassadors to all flesh. Our glory and gift is to be the last, the very last, to see around us, as the Spirit is poured out on us, even the most unexpected of us, the signs and the portents. We are the last, so were we're Paul and Peter, Polycarp and Perpetua, John the Golden Mouth, St. Patrick, Julian of Norwich, Susanna Wesley and her sons, D.L. Moody, Elizabeth of the Trinity, Watchman Nee, Martin Luther King Jr., old men, young women, rich, poor, of every background. Here at the ever-present end of the world, the light of the Spirit grows and glows and is glorious. My heart leaps in the field like a small soldier or a little shaking lamb. The stars spin. The Spirit is here. He pours himself out. I have seen visions.
0: I'm happy and afraid. That's so good. Thank you, Paul Pastor. It's about time your voice was heard on this podcast mediated to Anthony. I thought we'd end with a practice of repentance. One thing that desiring and believing the return of Jesus makes us want to do is bring our lives into alignment with his definition of the good. And not even, though it should be taken seriously because, man, the things that are out of alignment will be exposed before God, but because they are actively destructive to us right now. Fortunately, it's the Holy Spirit's timing. So when we do things like this and around disciplines of confession, it is, Holy Spirit, we ask for light. We ask to see our lives in the light of the revelation of Jesus, uh, not through hatred, not through condemnation, not through shame, but through your righteous conviction, which is motivated by love. Holy Spirit, we give you an opportunity to. Search us and name to us something in our lives that is not in alignment with Jesus right now that you are actually paying attention to. So we pause, we listen. And then as the Holy Spirit, you know, something comes to mind, a relationship that needs reconciliation, a spending habit, even a spiritual discipline where God has been inviting you uh, to participate, you go, "All right, Holy Spirit, and I repent. I ask your forgiveness, Lord Jesus." The part of restitution is, "What do you want? What do you want me to do? What would it look like to bring that area of my life into alignment with Jesus?" And then you know, I've said before that Ruth Haley Barton's recommendation on this is to seek out spiritual friendship and go, who, Jesus, do you want me to talk to, to text today or, uh, or right now about bringing this part of my life into alignment with Jesus or into the process of aligning with Jesus? And we bless you to be full of the spirit of god the spirit of wisdom and revelation to overflow with the knowledge of god to behold his love for you and for that motive power to bring you all the way through repentance into a new and in Eugene Peterson's phrase grace filled way of living Lord is
1: coming, is coming, love By Jesus coming back on you. Oh, the wonder where did my redeemer come? Oh, I wonder why did my redeemer come?